0: Welcome to Horsepower to Hyperloops, Kettering University's official podcast, where we serve up a smorgasbord of fascinating people, groundbreaking ideas, and noteworthy advancements in fields as diverse as mobility, healthcare, engineering, and technology.
1: the cooking alliance has also recorded that and stated that more than 1 billion tons of carbon is emitted each year from burning wood fuel to cook which is equivalent to the entire aviation industry okay So this is very significant. And I think people talk about clean cooking, what is this? So what this is, is working in small communities to replace their potentially, literally the fires they cook on with either an LPG gas, think of our grills that we use, or an electric cook stove, or a much more efficient wood burning stove, right? Where you can get really high efficiency in some of the new designs. And what corporates can do is they can fund these stoves to be built, distributed and monitored and we can track the avoidance, the carbon, from being emitted. The other super cool thing about this project is so not only do we have all those health benefits and we have a pull system, this project has developed and created over 2,000 jobs. They need team members to refill gas tanks, you know, the LPG tanks, to deliver the cook stoves, to train people on them, etc., etc., etc.
0: Hi, I'm Tim Troop Noonan your host for Horsepower to Hyperloops, Kettering University's official podcast. And that was Kettering alum Sherry Hickok, CEO of Climate Impact Partners in London, England, talking about just one of hundreds of projects her company is developing around the world in concert with corporate and governmental funders on one end and local agencies on the other to dramatically reduce carbon emissions on a large scale while simultaneously creating jobs and improving public health. Sherry and I had a wonderful discussion about something you don't hear very often, practical and globally impactful solutions currently being implemented to effectively and significantly reduce carbon in the atmosphere and stem the downward spiral of climate change. Sherry Hickok, CEO at Climate Impact Partners based in London. Thank you for joining us today on Horsepower to Hyperloops.
1: Thank you, Tim. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: I'm quite excited to talk to you because we haven't addressed climate in the podcast, except in talking about electrification of vehicles through some people involved with batteries and with GM and, and so on. But you are engaged at Climate Impact Partners. With a massive global effort to, as it says, reduce by 1 billion tons CO2. And you do that by partnering with people, getting involved in the carbon market, and putting up and producing, developing as many as 600 projects around the world. So before we get into climate and stuff, and I want to talk a little bit about your background. Give me a little bit more explanation for our listeners about Climate Impact Partners, which I know is a result of two, merger of two companies fairly recently.
1: That's right. Thanks a lot, Tim. You're spot on. Climate Impact Partners is a merger of two companies that have a long heritage of 25 years, Climate Care and Natural Capital Partners that were brought together about two years ago now. And what we do now called Climate Impact Partners is we work with corporates, governments, and communities to finance, develop, and manage projects, as you reference, that both reduce emissions and improve lives. And this is all focused at targeting, really, the climate crisis that we're facing.
0: And reducing emissions, I understand, has really two elements in and of itself. It's reducing emissions that are there and changing things so that emissions that would be put into the into the atmosphere are not.
1: Correct. That's correct. You have done your research well. So we call it avoidance. So, avoiding new emissions to happen or removing, that's actually removing greenhouse gases from the atmosphere.
0: What I'd like to do a little bit, because I, I know people love to know who they're listening to, I want to spend a couple of minutes just on how you got to be sitting there in that seat, starting as an engineer. I'm thinking of you, I'm going to embarrass you. I'm thinking of you as the engineer that's saving the world. Thanks. You you started out at going backwards. You've been there about eight months. Before that, you were working in onshore wind with GE and before that for over 20 years with GM, but you went to Kettering. So start there and and fill that in for me, starting with Kettering, because you're the only person I've ever met that I understand went to Kettering on a bet with her mother. <laughs>
1: that's that's a great shout out. Yeah, so you're right. I went to Kettering University. I graduated mechanical engineer with the automotive specialty, which for Kettering or GMI listeners, uh, that'll resonate well. And you are spot on. I made a bet with my mom that I would only go to Kettering if I got a co-op position at General Motors. And the reason was, is when we visited the school, I felt like this was a vocational school. We were down in the basement where they were rebuilding engines. And again, I hope I'm bringing back memories from some alumni. And I thought, there's no way I'm going here. I want to go to U of M. I want to go see football games on the weekends. So I bet my mother, I cannot get a job at GM. We have no family heritage though. I'm born and raised in Detroit. And could you believe that I had one phone call with General Motors and they made me an offer for a co-op at the end of that call. They never even met me in person. So I'm a big believer that everything happens exactly the way it's supposed to. And so I headed to Kettering.
0: I must add, of course, that with the Learning Commons and extraordinary other improvements and the revitalization of the entire area, the Kettering campus no longer appears as a vocational school, but more like a, an engineer's academic paradise.
1: Worked for General Motors for 22 years, growing up through product development and engineering, working across validation, development, and actually design. That's really the root of my background. And then spent time in supply chain, where I led global supplier quality, really got to see how parts were made. That gave me a lot of my quality and process background. And then spent a significant portion before I left leading vehicle platforms as a vehicle chief across a number of vehicles. but. GE came knocking, and I am a huge believer in leadership development, and GE is known for developing some of the best leaders in the world. So between that and the opportunity to work on onshore wind, which was really even just a step closer to impact for me on driving change, I thought this would be a really great opportunity. So I moved to GE in 2017, and I had some amazing experiences, both running product development for onshore wind but then actually becoming a P&L or a business leader inside GE in Ancharwen and had the opportunity with my family to move to Singapore where I ran the Asia operations And then to Paris, where I ran actually all of our international operations outside of North America. And I can tell you, I learned so much in that time. I spent six years with GE, and I think sometimes I had another 22-year career, both working outside of North America, being exposed to cultures, getting close to the renewable energy changes and investments that are really exploding right now. But last year, Climate Impact Partners knocked on the door, and I have to say, I really felt like this was a unicorn opportunity because, and what I mean by that is an opportunity to lead a company that's growing at a tremendous pace that has such high impact, not only for the climate crisis we're facing, but how we impact lives on the ground. And actually the reason I was brought in was really to use all of these experiences that I gained at General Motors and GE to help drive scale, not just in this business, but in this industry. How can we learn from what automotive has gone through, what renewables has gone through, and really bring processes, systematic thinking, standardization, quality transparency to this industry? And so that's what I'm excited to be here to do.
0: Well, that's an interesting career path, and it makes perfect sense when you explain it. You start out working in supply chain at GM, and and you're ending up heading up climate impact, but you describe the chain in the middle, and it makes perfect sense. But I want to go into a little bit more because I think of myself, as I think most of our listeners do, as a fairly aware person who pays attention, and I'm certainly aware of the climate problems we're facing and and some of the detailed issues like CO2 and and so on. But I have a little bit of a cynical attitude towards the fact that all the people that are involved in creating the problem, not to point the blame because we all are, have to be somehow motivated by self-interest, which boils down to money sometimes, more often than not to do something. And I'm wondering, how are we going to make this work? And I've learned now about the carbon market and carbon finance. And so I would like you to explain to me a little bit about how this works, because you're not going out and just getting some people and planting some trees by raising some money as a nonprofit. It's a whole much more complex industry sector than I ever realized. So could you explain the carbon market to us and how you guys operate?
1: Absolutely. So I'll first start with really clarifying one element. Our business, Climate Impact Partners, is in the voluntary carbon market. So there is a compliance market that's tied to some of the highest and heaviest emitters, such as aviation, et cetera. That is not what we're playing in. We're in the voluntary carbon market, which is actually just a $2 billion market right now. So it's still quite nascent and small. But the reason it's important to clarify that is because what we're doing is we're working with corporates who are voluntarily saying they're going to step up. And find ways to reduce their emissions as fast as they can. That is beyond what they can actually reduce on their own. So, for us, and if we back all, maybe I back up here for another minute, just say to elevate. The science has stated that for the world to not continue down the climate crisis that we're already starting to feel this summer and There's a few stats we can talk about that I'm sure the listeners across the U.S. would relate to, such as Phoenix, Arizona was over 110 degrees for 31 days straight this year in the month of July. The ocean temperatures at the surface level and in the southern tip of Florida are literally at a boiling point and has significant ramifications to the biodiversity in that space. And the Earth, the goal was to keep the average temperature below an additional 1.5 degrees, you'll hear this 1.5 degrees, what that means is 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. That's dating in the 1850s to 1900. In order to do that, we have to reduce our emissions down to a net zero level, meaning for any greenhouse gases that are going into the air, it has to be canceled out by the year 2050, by the mid-century. Okay, so companies that are bought into this, though there's no regulatory requirement or legal requirement to do this, companies are voluntarily saying, I'm going to sign up for a net zero target by 2050 and really work towards that. And as part of that plan, they're engaging in the voluntary carbon market. So what we do then is we work with corporates to identify ways that they can do this investment. This could be connected to finding ways back to what we talked about in the earlier part of the call to fund projects that avoid emissions that would be released or to fund projects. And when I say projects, it's real activity on the ground that would actually remove carbon or greenhouse gases from the air. And these projects can look like things such as on the avoidance side, clean cook stoves. And I'm happy to give some more examples and explain what clean cook stoves could mean, but actually funding clean cook stoves to go into developing countries or rural environments where they don't have that today, which would avoid emissions from what we would call dirty cooking or cooking with charcoal, or actually removal projects, which could be anything from engineered removals, like you would have heard a lot about direct air capture, where actually sucking carbon out of the air and burying it into the ground, or nature-based solutions, which is actually planting trees. And trees are one of the most prominent and powerful carbon sinks that we have because they actually breathe in the carbon and store it both in the roots, in the soil, and in the wood itself.
0: I was interested to see that it's in Guatemala somewhere, they're doing rubber trees where they're getting the latex out. and They're not only planting the trees and getting the latex, but that creates jobs in the local economy. For people as well. So there's sort of a ripple effect beyond the climate impact, correct? And a lot of these.
1: You are spot on. So our business. Are the mission at the heart of what we do and in our, our culture is impact. And it's exactly to what you're talking about there. It's actually the reason I joined this company. It's carbon as a means to actually impacting lives in a powerful way, like you described. So whether it's the rubber tree you give the example of there, we have another farm that we're working on where we're planting bamboo. And that bamboo will be planned to actually be harvested, a certain amount of it, for production of furniture. where. People can actually sell that. So it creates jobs, it creates economic income, it really fundamentally betters lives. And there's examples of what we call this this as co-benefits around the world with the projects we focus on.
0: Well, now just briefly, and I want to get into some more because I was surprised about the the home cooking things and that was such an impact. I mean, there's so many things that have such an impact that we don't even realize, we being the, the people out in the general public But on the other side of the equation, a lot of this has to do with offsets. And what I understand is the the example you gave to me earlier is like the airline industry who can't get to net zero without stopping flying so they can fund these projects and get offsets. Am I correct on that? So they are getting rid of some on their own account, and then they are getting rid of others that they're helping to fund. Have I got that equation correct?
1: You do. So what I would do is I would just clarify and back up on a few of the words. So you start with a carbon credit is the core element or the product of what we're creating. And that credit is based on either a ton avoided, ton of carbon CO2 avoided, or a ton of carbon removed from the air. Companies can invest in these projects and then they're given, like a renewable energy certificate or some other form of tradable asset, this credit. They can then use that to say, I'm going to offset the production of emissions that I do today, but I can't avoid. Okay, so you're right. Maybe I'll add a a few, a little bit more color to that. I think where a lot of concerns, and you didn't necessarily bring this up, but I think it should be addressed. There's a lot of concerns right now of language like greenwashing, that companies that use offsets are not actually taking the necessary steps to abate. So stop producing where they can. And we've done a study around the global Fortune 500. There's been a study by multiple other organizations that demonstrate companies that use offsets reduce their own emissions twice as fast. So I think that what you start to see is if companies are actually investing in high quality credits, and they're not all high quality. We can talk about that too. There's, I think, bad actors in every industry. But when they are investing in high quality credits, so putting their money where their mouth is, they're also taking the necessary steps to reduce their own footprint to begin with. Because that is what we believe, that offsets or carbon credits and investment and in this is important, both from a carbon perspective from the co-benefit and livelihood perspective. But the first thing every company should be doing is just to abate everything they can on their own.
0: So that's not necessarily a causative thing. It's just the fact that they are good enough citizens to support these projects. They're also doing what they can to abate on their own front. That's right?
1: right. The view is here if they're willing to spend this amount of money to do offsets, they're business people, right? They don't want to do this forever either, right? They want to bring that down. They know what their goals are and how they're getting there. So they're really bought in to the path that they're on and they're working on going as fast as they can and doing the right thing along the way.
0: I understand that you all are partially involved, not in only developing these projects, but in terms of a high level of quality control, which is measured by things like the gold standard and other things that are very rigorous, very complex. So in order for somebody to qualify for a carbon credit, they don't just go out and say, hey, yeah, we we sent a bunch of money to that. But the project has to meet all kinds of qualifications. Am I correct on that?
1: You are. There is about five core criteria that every project must meet. And it's things such as additionality, meaning the project wouldn't happen unless the special funding is coming in. Permanence, meaning you can't plant a tree and then cut it down three years later and access that credit, for example. So there's elements across these standards bodies, VERA, gold standard are the standards bodies, and there's a handful of others that set that. I think what One of the things that the industry is challenged on, and if you do some research online, this will come up, is this word transparency and and quality is used quite a lot. And part of the challenge, I think, is this industry, it's hard to see in all of these projects. There are new organizations coming in to try to bring more clarity on what the definition of quality and the threshold of quality is, such as ICVCM, which is an organization focused on the definition of ICVCM is the Integrity Council for the Voluntary Carbon Market. And they're working on saying, how does a project meet a minimum threshold of quality so it gets a bit of a stamp? You know, you can think about like the Energy Saver stamp. You know that that product, that appliance meets a certain threshold. There is more transparency being demanded because there have been low quality projects that have come through. And this industry has evolved quite dramatically over the last 25 years. So it has gone through its growth pains. It does have strong standards bodies. And we're working on bringing more and more transparency to it. And fundamentally, that's where I hope to bring some of my skills and the things I've learned through automotive and through renewables to help make that more visible and transparent so that we can stop talking about, is it good or not good, and really get the money flowing to the ground where it's needed.
0: Yeah, because it's a gray area. Nothing's perfect. And right. what you're saying, if I'm hearing you correctly, is you just want to make sure it keeps happening. Is that right? Yes.
1: We want to make sure it keeps happening. We want to get the money to flow. That's fundamentally, I mean, when you think about what I said about the ocean boiling and the temperatures in Phoenix, like we need to tackle this challenge now. And I think we need to stop talking about, turn the conversation from these aren't good. So we should do nothing. And as an engineer, we all know this being an engineer, like, let's figure out how to solve the problem. There's elements to this equation and we know how to figure that out. So that's what
0: I'm really focused on. We're talking with Sherry Hickok, CEO of Climate Impact Partners, which is working with partners on hundreds of projects around the world to reduce 1 billion tons of CO2 from the atmosphere. Well, I've seen some comments that you make have made about obstacles to companies doing it because they're they're worried they won't get it right or whatever. How do you overcome those obstacles? How do you work with them to to get them to pull the trigger and move forward?
1: That's a great, great question. So first, there's the first obstacle that a lot of people, just like you said, Tim, don't understand this area, right? And you read a headline and you're like, oh, this must all be bad. So first is get educated. There's a lot of places to get educated. And we work with our clients with what I call a very high-touch sales process to really help with that. We don't consult. We really just partner with them to help them learn the journey. The second is find someone you can work with that you trust the quality of their work. You can see into it. They can show it. They can give you those details. And we're proud to be able to do that with the history we have and the reputation we have. We deliver high quality projects and we do that because we have a very strong internal team, very strong due diligence and quality knowledge around what good looks like for projects. And lastly, I'd say, Be proud of what you do because I think what's happening is so many corporates are being slapped on the wrist for leaning in and trying to do what's right that they're pulling back now or they're doing something called green hushing. They're not talking about it. And we all know that those who lead, the first movers lead by example. And what we're creating is an environment where people are afraid, A, to take action or B, to to talk about it. And all that's going to do is slow down real impact that we know we need on the ground.
0: Now, do you have any work with the other side of the corporate, mostly corporate, which is those that are operating under compliance, they have to, do you help them at all? Or are you, you working with only those involved in voluntary compliance?
1: So we primarily work with voluntary, the voluntary carbon markets, but what we are starting to look at specifically is a compliance area for the aviation industry. It's called Corsia that has an acronym. I won't bore you with that right now, but really it's (laughs) the the regulatory elements around what the aviation industry has to invest in each year to offset their emissions. And what's happening there is actually Corsia for that regulation, they're changing the standards around what projects or what credits could be used for the aviation industry to do offsets. And it actually is going to create a, a situation where there's literally no supply for the aviation industry. And it's either invest in projects or be fined heavily. So we're starting to work in that space to really figure out how can we help them on their way? Because we ultimately, we don't want them to pay fines. This isn't about dollars. We really want the climate benefit that they're doing. The other place we engage quite a bit on is called government to government. Relations And what's also happening right now is different countries are looking at how do they meet their overall net zero goals. So you have corporate net zero goals, but you actually have country level they're also trying to achieve. But you can imagine some countries such as Japan, for example, doesn't have the land footprint to be able to do this type of investment to actually achieve their goals. They need emissions from other sources, emission reductions, excuse me, from other sources to hit their goals. So for example, a country such as Japan could be partnering with a country such as Malawi to say, we will fund you Malawi to build out projects. And we sit in the middle of that being a developer of those projects. So we were corporates, we work with compliance, and we work with governments trying to tackle this challenge.
0: And just a question that's hanging in my head, these organizations that do the standards, are they like NGOs? Are they international organizations? What are they made up of? What kind of companies are they?
1: They're NGOs. So they aren't seeking funding, meaning they're not, they shouldn't be leaning one way or another, but they're here to support creating transparency around what good looks like from a standards and methodologies approach.
0: So they are disinterested parties whose primary interest is the planet and emissions. Reductions rather than they're not tied to any government, any company, any industry.
1: That's correct. They're global. They have a tendency to serve different regions based on location, but mm-hmm. really, Vera is the largest standards body, which is certifying approximately 80% of the projects around the world today. But new standards bodies are developing as new types of projects are also developing.
0: Well, I mentioned earlier, and this is a fun thing you have 600, I think, as the number is up on your website at this point, projects around the world, I was skimming through them and just very enthusiastic. I I just kept going, wow, that's cool. That's cool. That's cool. (laughs) You must have some favorite projects that that you like or you bring out or you mention from time to time. Can you go into one or two more than beyond the ones we've mentioned?
1: Sure. I'll give you a small, a little bit more detail about clean cooking because I think a lot of people talk about trees you know it's like oh i planted a tree in my yard i have a project okay that's that's not what we're talking about here so just some some background i don't think people really have any realization around the lack of clean cooking and the implications of that globally so nearly one in three people around the world still don't have access to clean cooking technology and when i say clean cooking the alternate of that is dirty cooking. So, you know, those. these are Sherry's words. This isn't a, an official term you'll find on dirty cooking online. For all of you, I'm from Michigan. Maybe a, s- a lot of listeners, if they're alumni, will be from Michigan, potentially, if they're from Kettering. We go up north, we make campfires, right? Or that's traditionally what happens. It's like putting a campfire in a very small room and cooking on it. So think about ingesting that smoke from that. That contributes to 4 million deaths a year from indoor air pollution, which is more than HIV, malaria, and tuberculosis combined. And I think that's a pretty staggering stat. And the Clean Cooking Alliance has also recorded that and stated that more than 1 billion tons of carbon is emitted each year from burning wood fuel to cook, which is equivalent to the entire aviation industry. Okay, so this is very significant. And I think people talk about clean cooking, what is this? So what this is, is working in small communities to replace their potentially, literally the fires they cook on with either an LPG gas, think of our grills that we use, or an electric cook stove, or a much more efficient wood-burning stove, right, where you can get really high efficiency in some of the new designs. And what corporates can do is they can fund these stoves to be built, distributed, and monitored, and we can track the avoidance of the carbon from being emitted. But you can also see the livelihood improvements based on those stats I just said. I visited a project that does this in Africa, actually in Kenya. I was able to go to Nairobi, where we have a global team, back in March. And I visited a, a project led by a company called MGas. And MGas distributes these LPG cook stoves. And I was able to go in someone's home who proudly showed me how he didn't have clean cooking before. Now he has clean cooking in his home and was really excited and has been a referral for this business to bring on multiple more people in his community to clean cooking. So you can see the ripple effect and and actually the intrinsic demand from the communities. These things aren't being pushed on people. The other super cool thing about this project is so not only do we have all those health benefits and we have a pull system, this project has developed and, and created over 2,000 jobs. They need team members to refill gas tanks, you know, the LPG tanks, to deliver the cook stoves, to train people on them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you can think about, yeah, there's X number of carbon credits that are being issued to some corporate, whoever's funding this each year. But now we've just saved lives. We've given people better livelihood through jobs. And this is actually all in the city. These things are around the world, whether it's clean cooking from an electric perspective or LPG, et cetera. And this just multiplies, whether you're in Kenya, whether you're in India, whether you're somewhere in South America.
0: But the granularity of affecting that, given that you're talking about individual homes, you're not putting up a solar field somewhere in one place. You're you're talking about... Millions of homes just in Africa alone. How do you get to all those homes? Or obviously, you can't get to all of them, but that seems to me a hugely labor intensive project.
1: It absolutely is. And I think you hit on the head one of the first words that came to me when I joined the company and I started to look at what we're doing and what we're trying to achieve, and that word is scale. What do you do to drive scale? And so the things we're thinking about internally, because that last mile of delivering the stove will be the last mile, meaning we will likely need human labor to do that. But where can you use data? OK, and I can give an example from MGAS and how they're doing that. Where can you use, think about our engineering days, where can you use common practices, standard work, common systems and tools to replicate? OK, and those are the things we're trying to think about to, be, to simplify and go faster. So, for example, in this MGAS situation, they actually have each of the stoves wired digitally and they use a card to tap that stove to turn it on. And that data is collected on every stove and really uploaded to the cloud. And so MGAS knows all the uses, knows who's running low on gas, who's not using, who needs training, et cetera. So we need to figure out how to use the tools we have at our fingertips, such as data, such as digitization, such as standard work to allow us to go faster and not just do all every project like a snowflake.
0: Right. If you were in the business of doing that, that seems to me... A business in and of itself. But I keep going back to the fact that you've got hundreds and hundreds of projects, none of which look like one another. So you're kind of having to reinvent the wheel for each problem, it seems like.
1: Yeah, I think that that is how the system has been treated. And that's what we're trying to change now with thinking about standards, approaches to design, standard approaches to implementation. And then you can think about how you do it. So you will hear people use the word jurisdictional level implementation. So where do you go get the largest assets of land? How can you work with governments to say second a a huge area so that we can do this much faster? It doesn't mean it's any less labor intensive to potentially grow a seedling and plant a seedling. But if you can do it in a more consistent, larger application at one time, you can see how you can get the scale efficiencies out of that. So this industry is thinking about how to do that. Another, I'll give you another small example, because I'm always thinking about where should we be investing our time, which types of projects. Another one is enhanced rock weathering. So enhanced rock weathering is where you actually take specific types of rocks that have nutrients in them that actually they combine with the rain and as they disintegrate into the soil, they will capture carbon and that gets buried into the soil. This is actually an old tradition that's been used in a lot of indigenous communities to bring nutrients to the soil where they planted. But here you can think about from a scale perspective, you can spread this quite easily across fields that you're planting in. So all the time in all areas, I think we need to be thinking about how do we scale these projects in an efficient way and where should we spend our our time. That said, based on just this summer alone, you can quickly see we need all activities everywhere now. And right. so I wouldn't want to discourage anybody who's trying to do high-quality development from trying to get that done. I would encourage them to think about how can they do it efficiently, how can they do it faster? How can they replicate? And how can they demonstrate that with transparency so that we can continue to get the funds flowing into projects?
0: So you've got these hundreds of projects all over, and we were talking about how complex some of them are, how granular some of them are, how involved some of them are. How do you actually get them done? Because you can't do it sitting there at your computer in London. It takes people and, and energy. How does it work?
1: That's a great question. So we work with local project deployment partners on the ground. And what I mean by that is, you know, around the world, there's Teams or companies of people that know how to implement these projects. They know, for example, I'll walk through an Indonesia project that I recently visited. They know the farmers that we need to work with. They know the nurseries. They know the indigenous trees. They know the communities and they know the cultural ways to execute. Those are things we won't know. We really look for people who we can partner with where they have that on the ground expertise. And what we bring is the carbon. Expertise. We know how to develop a carbon project. We know how to bring the standard work in. We know what types of data needs to be developed, monitored, and assessed over time. And we really look where we can find a fit that we can be value add from both ends to deploy these projects. A big piece of what we also do is focus on what benefits go to the communities, and it's really important that we're staying close to the communities because, as you said earlier. Often the people that are most impacted by the climate issues are the ones that didn't create it. And so we want to make sure that these communities are really thriving, whether it's through new schools being built. That's one example. We had a project where a floating hospital was built by a client or just the basics of job creation, clean water being brought to an area, et cetera. So that's how we execute in partnership with project implementation teams on the ground that we partner closely with in a value-added way.
0: So you're not just sailing in from above and landing on somebody. The people there experience locals who can help them with this problem, who they trust and know and who understand all the cultural and logistical issues on the ground.
1: That's right. At the heart of our culture, in addition to impact at Climate Impact Partners, is relationships and people. I am really proud to say I think we execute that in all we do, including how we really build relationships and partner with the communities and the teams we work with globally.
0: And something I, I haven't asked you, are there other climate impact partners out there? Are there similar companies doing a lot of this?
1: There are. I'd say in our space where you're really working all the way from the corporates down to project development, there's many, but really probably at the level we're working with, I'd say there's about a half a dozen. So as I mentioned, you know, it's quite a fragmented industry. So what you're finding is a lot of people are joining the industry to solve a piece of the problem. There's fewer places and fewer people that are working across the entire industry.
0: Which is what you're doing. Absolutely. And that comes under the issue of carbon reduction, basically.
1: That's right. Really connecting that finance from the corporates or the governments all the way to the ground with project development and
0: implementation. So in a way, and your interest, and by your, I mean you, Sherry Hickok, is to bring the business and engineering solutions to a business problem of how do you leverage your resources, time, money, personnel, to have the greatest impact. You know, that's a standard issue but that's that's really a big one for you to do that in this industry right
1: that you are spot on that is my entire goal is how can we use all of the wonderful learnings from the large industrial industries that have evolved before us to enable this one to go faster and i think there's a real opportunity there
0: well let me as we i don't want to bury people with too many facts this is just fascinating i could talk to you for six hours, but to bring it down, there's two things that I have learned in talking to you and reading and so on. I need to understand. One is that I know that some large percentage, the Global 500 is not participating. I'm pairing that with the fact that this is a $2 billion industry and growing. So tell me a little bit about each of those and how they relate to one another and, and what you mean by 2 billion and where it's growing. Tell me a little bit about the industry as opposed to just climate impact partners.
1: That's great. So you're right. For the global Fortune 500, about 50% have some type of goal, okay? Some type of greenhouse gas emission reduction goal. But what we're finding is, and a lot of that on the higher scale is tied to 2050. And as I said earlier in the discussion, the scientific target is to achieve no more than a 1.5 degrees Celsius increase in the average global temperature vis of the 1850s, for example. So their targets are tied to, to 2050. By 2030, we actually need to half emissions. So right now the world emits about 50 billion tons of carbon each year. We need to take that down to 25 billion. We are nowhere near on that track. And that includes these companies that have set goals, but haven't set them near term. So this industry being $2 billion is estimated to grow anywhere from 4 to 10 times minimum by 2030 alone. And it is predicted that supply will be outstripped by demand by 2026. And we have a huge opportunity, one, for corporates to really, in the private sector, to really raise their ambitions and actions. We talked a bit earlier about how they're stepping back because there is an element of transparency and lack of understanding that isn't clear. We need them to lean in. They make a significant amount of the economic profit around the world. And we've done a study to show that if every company just invested 1.5% of their profit, we would have significant impact on this challenge. And so that's the first is that how do we get the corporate sectors to really not just set targets, but start to lean in with real action? And then how do we, for this industry, as you said, it's $2 billion, how do we really work together to drive this scale effect? The industry is extremely fragmented. Some of the largest players only have a revenue maximized around, I think, about a $250 million. And that's tiny on the big scale of what we're trying to accomplish. We need to actually remove a total of about 5 billion tons a year, 5 billion tons with offsets. The entire voluntary carbon market since its inception, approximately 25 to 30 years ago, has only removed 5 billion tons. So you can see the big gap and the demand that's coming upon us between now and I'll say 2050, but there's a heavy ramp curve here and what the industry has actually done to date.
0: And by the industry, would I be safe to call it the carbon reduction industry? And how would you tagline that? the The
1: voluntary carbon market.
0: Okay. Voluntary carbon market. So here's the question. Simplest one of all, most important one of all. Can we do it?
1: We can do it. We know the solutions today to do it. People have to lean in and take action.
0: Okay. Well, Sherry Hickok, CEO of Climate Impact Partners, this has been a fascinating discussion and an encouraging discussion, to me at least, that somebody is out there in a pragmatic fashion working with the biggest players in the world to try to figure this out and actually have, as you've called it, impact. And that's what we need, not just a lot of people talking. So thank you very much for your time. And I really appreciate the time and and what you all are doing. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Tim. It's been a pleasure. I'm just honored to be here and looking forward to drive that impact we talked about.
0: Join us again to hear Kettering University's podcast, Horsepower to Hyperloops, Available from wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening.